Hi, this is Andrea Smartin, back with Episode 2 of Next Door Strangers, a podcast about finding connection in a time of division. Today's show, The Strength of Tribes. Tribe. For me, to be a member of a tribe is to be a member of a philosophy of life. It ended up being like just the very lifeline that I needed. I don't think we all have to believe the same thing to be unified. I do think that we have to figure out how to be willing to listen to each other. And then you realize that what you thought you were going to go fix or help actually fixes you. In the last episode, we talked about the threat of tribalism. But today, we're flipping that argument on its head. Tribes are also a source of strength. For most of human history, it's how we've survived, banding together in small, trusted groups that are stronger together. Today, we're going to hear from people who rely on tribes in different ways. We'll hear from a spiritual leader of a native tribe with some advice for Americans. And we'll hear from a military vet about war, unity, and how he learned to create the tribe he needed. First, I want to get personal for a minute. This might shed some light on why I wanted to do this podcast in the first place. I'm 42 years old, living as a transplant in Salt Lake City with my husband and daughter, and I'm only just beginning to realize that I've been missing something important. Maybe it's what you would call a tribe. But for most of my life, I didn't know I was missing it. My mom's family comes from a small town outside of Boston. If you live there, it's like the song from the Cheers sitcom, where everybody knows your name. My uncle died in the house where he grew up. My aunt still lives on the same block, my cousin and his kids in the house directly behind her. But my mom went to college, met my dad, a small town Vermonter, and as many baby boomers have done, they left their ancestral homelands, landing in Syracuse, New York. As soon as I was old enough, I did just what my parents did, went off to college, a private liberal arts school in Connecticut. That's where I met my husband, Anil, who's a mix of Indian, Czech, and Nebraskan. With Anil, I moved from Boston to Seattle to Salt Lake City. I've never lived anywhere long enough to be able to have what my extended family has, the comforts of a hometown. To be honest, it's not something I thought I wanted. But after seven years in Salt Lake City, I'm realizing that I might live out my days here in this valley, surrounded by mountains and desert. Only now has the disconnect started to feel like a gaping hole. I even joined a group to connect better to this community. One day in the group, I heard this older man talking about what it means to be a Ute, to be part of a literal native tribe. And I wondered, what would it be like to be connected to something like a tribe, something bigger than you? to have a sense of your place in the world. I couldn't imagine it. So I invited him into the studio. Can we start with your name and title? (laughs) Title. (laughs) Hello world, my name is Lacey Harris. I'm a Northern Ute. I'm also identified in that community as a spiritual leader. I remember hearing you speak about tribe and it stirred something in me, a kind of longing. What does tribe mean to you? What does it mean to be part of a tribe? Tribe. Uh, For me, to be a member of a tribe is to be a member of of a philosophy of life. Uh, Tribe is your boundaries. Tribe is your whole identity, your culture, your traditions, your philosophy, your, your way of looking at and dealing with the world. Tribe is your boundaries. 
Ever since I left my parents' home, I've been living as if I had no boundaries, just chasing the next opportunity. But there is an anxiety that comes with being so untethered. My sister has done the same as me, ending up in North Carolina. Our whole family is scattered. Lacey says tribal identity starts at birth. When a child is named by an elder, grandparents teach Ute traditions, which are reinforced by aunts and uncles. He carries with him reminders that connect him to his identity, to generations that came before and after. He wears a baseball hat with a bear paw on it. The bear paw reminds me of who I am. You know, we expect all the power and, and, and examples of, of what the bear gives us. Is that connected with the Ute tribe? Most tribes respect the bear because it is kind of a solitary animal, but at the same time, you know, they come together. It's uh, been said by many tribes that that's where we've learned a lot of our medicines from is, is the bear and watching the animals. He also wears two beaded pouches around his neck. One is a medicine bag and the other is for his cell phone. On his wrist is a big silver bracelet made by his granddaughter with a bear claw in it. I tell people, you know, when they say, oh, isn't that beautiful? I say, yeah, this, this bear claw is a, is a picture of my grandpa. You know, it reminds me of my grandpa. You know, my earrings, grandma says, I'm going to punch your ears so that you'll always stay close to home. Well, I'm close to home because my <laughs> reservation's 140 miles east of Salt Lake, you know, so I'm, I'm close to home. Yeah, I've gone to New York and California, all these different places, but I always come home. Lacey thinks of his grandpa every time he looks at that bear claw. I'm ashamed to say that I didn't even make it to my grandfather's funeral. Lacey is a licensed clinical social worker. He's worked in the mental health field for decades. He's seen it among natives and non-natives. A lot of people are missing something critical. A lot of the gangs and a lot of the groups that are getting together, they're looking for that identity. I know back in the 60s, the hippies were trying to be native. You know, they'd wear beads and wear their, their braids and all that kind of stuff, hop around the fire, you know, and all, all the things trying to be like we were, you know. And it's the same that I've seen in, in my mental health, that so many people are lacking an identity. And so many people are lost because they don't have any roots to anywhere. Like you said, your family moved from where they were to another place. You and your sister have moved to somewhere else. Where's your roots? There are a lot of Americans like me. We were even the subject of a book called Bowling Alone that identified the problem at the turn of the century. Americans were losing organized social structures like bowling leagues, unions, churches, and places where we used to come together. So that whole philosophy of bonding, that whole philosophy of finding uh, a family, if you will, is what's lacking in, in today's society. That's why I think we find so many uh, problems with the political situation. You know, there's so many tr trying to find some kind of identity, some kind of, of uh, oh, yeah, this is, this is a man who's going to lead me on to whatever it is, you know. You know, they're searching for those roots. But Lacey says if Americans are basing our identity in political ideology, we're in trouble. No matter who is in the majority, Lacey sees a lack of cohesion, that we're missing a fundamental understanding of what holds us together. Okay, let's think about this. In episode one, we learned how tribalism threatens our survival as a species. But Lacey Harris says humans need to be part of a tribe. We need a sense of identity and belonging. Which raises a question. What if, like me, 
You were raised without a tribe. Is it possible to create one? Well, I remember basic training. I don't remember exactly what our drill sergeant said, but it said something about us all being different. And he said, none of that matters anymore. Now you're all green. That's Army veteran Jason Comstock, who discovered that when you're faced with an enemy threatening your life, tribe just happens. We were actually on base in Iraq. There was a rocket attack. And I remember running, for some reason, this thing happens and you run towards this, you know, which is crazy. You know, most of the time you think, oh, run away from it. Well, because of what our job was, we were running towards this situation. And I remember looking around and seeing who was with me and recognizing that these people were willing to do the same thing I was willing to do. They were willing to run towards this scary situation rather than running away. And that's, I think, when it starts to change. When you recognize that someone is, the guy next to you is willing to make the same sacrifice you are. The part of Jason's story I find most interesting is what happened when he returned home. When he gets back, he only takes two weeks off because he needs the money. He goes right back to his office job in IT, sitting in front of a computer. Just trying to, you know, figure out where normal was and get back to normal. Uh, I think I, in my mind everything was fine and things were normal and I was moving forward and doing everything that I needed to. But my family started to see some concerns and some issues. My wife started to recognize some things. Then something weird happened when he was driving home from work. And I'm driving down the road and there's a small styrofoam cooler on the side of the road just kind of in the gutter, and I'm swerving around it. Just as I would in Iraq, you know, tra- you have to watch out for trash piles because you don't know what's been hidden in that trash pile. So for about three days I do this until finally I have to stop and investigate and find out it's just an empty styrofoam cooler that somebody probably had their lunch in. For me, that was when I first realized that something, that something wasn't right, that I was missing something. He was having trouble controlling his anger, yelling at his kids, and struggling to manage regular life tasks. Finally, his wife convinced him to get therapy, and he was diagnosed with PTSD. He saw the therapist for a few months. They said, you know, you're doing really good. We can continue to meet if you want to. And the minute he said, you know, if, if you think you're okay, we don't have to meet, then I was like, I'm out and we're done. This is great. I'm cured. But he was not cured. Started gaining weight, started becoming an emotional eater. You know, here I thought I was cured and that similar pattern started to come back again of more anger than seemed right for the situation. And I realized I needed to do something different. What he needed was team red, white, and blue. And I think it wasn't until I got involved with that group that I realized that that was something that I was missing. Team Red, White, and Blue is a national organization. It has chapters across the country, and it's open to anyone, veterans and civilians. The idea is that they forge a community by doing things together. Could be running a marathon, meeting up for a barbecue, or like today, going for an early morning hike. And as a result of that group, I created this, really this core friend group. On this morning, the sun is starting to rise, and three of the team members are headed up a steep trail in a canyon near Salt Lake City. Today, the group is Jason, another veteran, Mark Taylor, and Amy Donaldson-Brass, a civilian. 
They've let me tag along, chasing after them with a microphone and recorder tucked inside my rainbow-colored fanny pack. They keep a steady stream of conversation all the way up, jumping from one topic to another, from Mark's urban farm, Senator John McCain's death, to their buddy who's not here because he's been hospitalized with PTSD, to the next race they want to do. At the lookout point, they take a selfie together, as they always do. Jason is a full head taller than the other two. Amy is a small blonde. Mark is a quiet, bearded guy. They were perfect strangers with nothing in common a few years ago. Now tight friends with stories to tell. Jason says it was on this trail where he realized what this group meant to him. We had a pretty traumatic experience. My wife was in a vehicle accident with a fatality. His wife was okay, but someone on a motorcycle died. I didn't know what to do. And then just a few days after that, we go running on this trail, the three of us actually, and I did not want to go running. In fact, on the way up here, uh, driving up here, I almost hit a deer on 215. My heart's pounding. I am already on edge. And we're up here, we're a little bit farther up, and I fall down. And these two start to laugh at me. (laughs) But what's funny about that is suddenly any tension that I had felt was gone. I realized that this was a safe place and and everything was going to be okay. I didn't know what that meant, but but it did incredible things for me to help me realize, hey, it's going to be okay. And and, and these folks, you know, they're going to help me through this and help my family through this. And they did. And so... It was, I think it was like the first time I'd never fallen in all of our runs. It was the very first time I'd ever fallen. I'm going to admit that I was like, yes, (laughs) finally someone else. But I'll be honest, I fell and part of me wanted to start crying because of what I was going through emotionally. These guys find out I'm okay and then they start to laugh. And I realize that's really where I need to be. I need to be laughing. I need to, you know, we're going to get through this. Yeah. Thanks for laughing at me, guys. Which I, which I, I provide, try to provide a lot of opportunities for him. So yeah. I provide the most. I think with the following. Yeah. Yes. yes. Amy is a friend of mine, a fellow journalist. She was the one who introduced me to this group. To be honest, it's taken me a while to understand why Amy, who's never served in the military, would spend so much time with them. For Amy, this group turned out to be something different than she expected. She thought she was there to help veterans and connect better to her dad, who was a Marine. But then Amy had this crazy idea that they should run a 50-mile race together. And that's where this group of strangers really got to know each other. But something happened to Amy in the race. Almost 30 miles in, she got heat stroke. And I got super sick. I couldn't eat. I couldn't even drink water. And Jace was pretty far ahead. You had the flag. Yeah. And Tom was like, well, then we're, all, then we're not making it either. Yeah. You know, we're not, we're not leaving you. And this, for me, was a completely different experience. So as a civilian, I've never had this experience. You don't ask somebody else to give up a finish or their time or their PR or whatever because you can't go on that day. Family and friends helped Amy on the side of the trail, soaked her shirt in a bucket of ice water, replaced her pants with shorts, and she was able to go again. Then, with five miles left, Tom's knees gave out and he couldn't run anymore. But they stayed together and they finished together even if they walked most of the way to the finish line. The race director had already taken down the race. We crossed the finish line. He looks at his watch. And he says, okay, I'll say that's about uh, 1235. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that, yeah. And but, it was but like you know not... what's funny is that didn't take anything away from me. No. We had matter. finished something incredible. 
But for me, it was really more that, uh, like, it just changed the way I viewed what we do. It might sound crazy, but it never crossed Amy's mind that she would need help finishing a 50-mile race. But she would not have finished it without these veterans. She didn't know what it would feel like for someone to say, I'm not leaving you, and what a difference that would make. We met at a time that, you know, I had a lot of personal stuff. Since Amy's my friend, I know she was dealing with some hard issues with her kids. She was struggling, as parents do, feeling like whatever she did, she was failing. And she was bearing this weight alone. Until she joined Team Red, White, and Blue. And it ended up being, like, just the very lifeline that I needed. Amy didn't know that she needed these guys as much as they needed her. And then you realize that what you thought you were going to go fix or help actually fixes you. There's a reason that you need to be that connected. It's really easy to be more and more into yourself and cocoon up, I guess, right? Uh, What these guys have taught me over and over in a million different ways is I am better, I am nicer, I am more fulfilled, and my life is richer if I just keep reaching out to that person that I think I don't have anything in common with. Mile after mile, stopping for each member when they need it, Team Red, White, and Blue has managed to create their own tribe of sorts. It's not about uniting against an enemy, but each member has come to realize that, in a way, their lives are on the line. For Jason, his marriage and his relationship with his kids was at stake. He says for him, it wasn't about finding a cure. It was about finding partners, people who would be there with him at every step. Because I have these friends now, when things do get bad or hard, I know that I can have someone, I can say, hey, I'm having a rough day. And they're not going to judge me or ignore me or say, you know, that's too bad. Sorry, I got to work. They're going to drop whatever it is they're doing and, and try to help me out. Sometimes it's just great. Well, what's, what mountain are we going to climb this weekend? And knowing that someone's going to be there and help me get to that summit. And an interesting thing has happened along the way. It's opened up his mind. The group of friends that I now have as a result of Team Red, White, and Blue is a fairly, as far as ideologically, very diverse group. Politically, we have very different views. And so I just want to say, first of all, I don't think we all have to believe the same thing to be unified. I do think that we have to figure out how to be willing to listen to each other. I have, again, with this, this wonderful group that I have, I have, I've had opinions about different things, political or, or whatever. And so we'll go out for a run, for example, and I'll say, hey, what do you guys think about this? And, and I'll hear these other points of view that maybe I wouldn't have heard otherwise. And it has formed my opinion and even allowed me to change my opinion. I have gotten to the point now, thanks to this this group of very tight friends, that I will wait to form an opinion until I've gotten a chance to visit with them. Because of these relationships, because of the really the love that I have for these people, their opinion matters to me. Turns out, you can create a new tribe. It helps to go through hard stuff together. You know you've succeeded when someone falls down and you can all laugh. And here's the real mind bender. A strong tribe can actually help you connect to someone with a different viewpoint. In other words, if we had better tribes, 
maybe we wouldn't have to worry about tribalism. Like Amy, I've spent most of my life focused on running my best metaphorical race. I guess I just assumed I was on my own. I never thought about what it would mean to run it with a team. But when I watch Team Red, White, and Blue together, I want that more than anything else. Okay, your turn. Every episode of Next Door Strangers ends with a challenge. Last time, we asked you to list groups of people in your life that make you stronger, your top five tribes. One of my first and oldest tribes is my siblings. My faith, the military. The Junior League here in Salt Lake City. My talented, unique band. Social innovators and wrestlers. This time, we're going to move from self-reflection to interaction. We want you to get someone else to do the Five Tribes Challenge. The only qualification is that you find someone who has never heard this podcast. Could be your cousin or a neighbor, or if you're feeling adventurous, someone who you don't know very well. Maybe even your political opposite. Remember what my friend Amy said? I am better, I am nicer, I am more fulfilled, and my life is richer if I just keep reaching out to that person that I think I don't have anything in common with. Yes, this is a not-so-sneaky way of spreading the word about the podcast. But we're also shifting our focus from what's dividing us to what connects us. So have your partner compile that list and then talk about it. What holds your groups together? And what do your lists have in common? Send us a voice memo about who you talked to and what you learned at strangers at KUER.org. Even better, record it together. Coming up on Next Door Strangers, we tackle our biggest challenge yet, breaking up cliques in the high school lunchroom. You walk into the lunchroom and you'll question whether or not you're in like the 1960s because there's so much segregation within our building. Next Door Strangers is a production of KUER in Salt Lake City. Our team includes Tim Slover, Joel Meyer, Gail Ewer, Renee Bright, and Chelsea Naughton. Find out more about our show and learn how to connect with others at KUER.org. I'm Andrea Smartin.